you this morning. You just raise your hand, somebody will, will bring you one. We're going to be in Romans 1 this morning. <clears throat> and um, let, me, let me pray as we, as we come to God's Word. Father, who are we that you would spare, you would not spare Jesus? That you would send this glorious, magnificent Son, the eternal God, to this world to lay his life down in our stead. God, we we have done nothing to deserve your grace, your mercy, uh, in any way, shape, or form, Lord. That your divine favor has been poured out goes against the grain of this fallen world. It, It doesn't make sense, Lord, to our fallen logic that you're like that, that that's what you're like. But, oh, Father, I am so glad it is. I am so thankful that you are a a loving God who has profoundly poured out his mercy and grace. And so, Lord, as we look at a dark passage, a passage of Scripture that has potential to offend, has potential to make it difficult for people to stare at, Lord, let us see this backdrop that we might see the glory of your Son. For Lord, this is the reality. Let us embrace the reality. Let us look to see what your word tells us about us and what you've accomplished, Lord. We wish to see you receive all glory and honor and praise. It's not ours. It's yours, Lord. So let us happily See the magnificence of our God and the truth of the gospel. Amen. Mankind, by nature, when I say by nature, is designed to worship. Mankind worships. It's what he does. When I say he, he, she, they, the, the, all children, all people, in some way, in some fashion, at some level, worship. All people. Um, We have a lot of different religions where we say people go here and go there to worship. Certain locations, certain certain, uh, ways they do it, so on and so forth. And we use that in reference to worship. But the reality is, beloved, worship is designed. It's there. If somebody never enters a quote-unquote church building, they will be a worshiper. They will find something or someone to worship. There's really no option. The scripture does not give us an option of somebody who says, "Eh, I'm just indifferent to that. I don't worship anything. Everybody worships someone or something. Mankind will most certainly glorify someone or something. Bob Dylan said you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, he didn't get much right, but he got that right. You will. You will serve somebody. And what's interesting is the audacity of mankind to say, that's not true. I don't worship anything. Really. It doesn't take much time to find idols in our culture. I'd go so far to say it doesn't take time, much time to find idols in 
all cultures. You travel in all kinds of cultures, you'll find something that is held above that receives their, and again, they may not use the language praise, glory, worship. They may not talk like that, but you look at their time, their finances, their their value system is wrapped around something or someone. It's everywhere. A, this is a, uh, an interesting aspect, beloved, because it is actually one of the largest central themes of the Bible, this concept of idolatry. It's one of the largest concepts that's throughout your scripture. Let me just remind you of the Ten Commandments, beginning with, you shall not have another God above this God. It starts in reference to that aspect of idolatry. Which was interesting, Moses was receiving those Ten Commandments while the Israelites were down forming a golden calf. There's some cruel irony throughout the scripture as well. But this idea of idolatry is far deeper, far darker, and far worse than we probably ever give it um, uh, a credit for. It runs at the very core of who we are as fallen creatures. And it is the central theme, it is the, the, the hub that the spokes are coming off of in the passage we're looking at right now in reference to this fallen nature of mankind and his suppression of truth and sin, all of these things. It finds its focal point in, and here's the word of the text of, our, of this sermon this morning, central to our text, the exchange of God for something. The exchange of God for something. And please don't miss me here. Not the exchange of ideas for other ideas. Not just the exchange of a group of truths for another group of truths. The scripture doesn't talk like that when it speaks of idolatry. Rather, it is the exchange of God himself for something else. You see, it's far more personal. It's not just, well, I don't think like that. I think like this. It's far more personal than that, so far that our scripture makes reference to God as a jealous God. And so, coming back to our passage, let me set this in the, in the proper context. If you look at 18, chapter 1, 18, verse 18, the wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. So, simply put, you guys, here's here's what's being communicated there. God's wrath is being revealed more and more and more. And you go, why? Why is that happening? And so, really, what we're looking at in this passage, uh, basically this chapter, is God's wrath is being poured out because of these reasons. And he starts listing these reasons, and I would see them as more of a digression. As things are getting worse and worse, I'll show that later in this message. But first and foremost, what they know about God to be true, they hate 
and they suppress. Now, here's the interesting thing. This is where <clears throat> some believers and the world would think I'm cuckoo, but I believe it's what the Word clearly teaches, is that there is no such thing as an intellectual struggle. Now, I'm not saying there aren't intellectual struggles, okay? That, that exists, but it's symptomatic. What's at the core, what's at the heart, is a moral issue, is a sin issue, is a fallen issue, a darkness of the heart issue. And Paul here does not say there are those who are struggling and they call themselves agnostics or atheists and they need better argumentation and then they'll believe. He doesn't even talk, he doesn't go near that. Rather, what does he say? Oh, they know it. They know the truth. They recognize through that which is made that, that there's a glorious God who's created all things. But their response to that is, I'd rather not. So they reject it and they suppress it. And that again, that idea of suppression is you're, you're pressing something down that is pushing up or holding a spring compressed. There's pressure because it's so clear God's made himself manifest that you have to work hard to hold it down. God's wrath is being revealed and it's not a hard case to make to look around at our world you could just say in the US just look around and see how we suppress the truth of God in our culture how we cut off our nose intellectually to spite our face or to spite the Lord try to remove him and so we ended up looking like fools arguing that all things came from nothing and that becoming the predominant driving scientific backbone because we hate God. That's what the Word says. The Word doesn't give it any, theolo any um, academic credit whatsoever. It says it's a sinful anger that's behind it, not an intellectual struggle. And yet, in the midst of all that, they declare themselves wise. Look at 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. There's two kinds of wisdom. There's worldly wisdom and there's true wisdom. So there's real wisdom and there's man's imitation of what wisdom is. Remember, wisdom is not knowledge, and knowledge is not wisdom. They're not the same thing. Wisdom is the application or the proper way of making decisions based on that knowledge. That's where wisdom shows itself, true biblical knowledge. So as we have the knowledge that's been revealed here in Romans, right? God's made this evident. They know it. It says, although they know God, that's not in a salvation way, but in a way of acknowledgement that there is a God. They have that knowledge. Then you ask them, so what do you do with the knowledge God's made so crystal clear in that which is made? What do you do with that? I suppress it. And the scripture's response, fool. That's the answer. No, no, no. I, I've come up with this this very complicated system of evolutionary processes that will eventually develop and will become a human being who will get better and better except for they die. Ridiculous. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. Okay? But what's, why are they doing this? Why would they think like that? Why would they do everything they can to make it more complicated? Because the more academic, the more complicated, and the more... Um, 
intellectually savvy it becomes, the more it is professed to be wise. That's very smart. That's very brilliant. Now, if we could only get the majority to agree, and then that happens. They professed to be wise, but they became fools. This is what's interesting. This idea of fool in the scripture, particularly in this passage, is not a reference to fool in a person who's just um, somebody who has a lack of capability. That's not what he's speaking about here. He's a fool because he has no lack of capability, but by his will says no and suppresses reality. He morally says no and suppresses reality. That's the basis here. This is not, he's not very smart, he's not too bright. That's not the idea here when it makes reference to a fool. A fool is one who sees plainly that which is and says, I'd rather not because I like my sin. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. Why? Because it's so evident. It's plain, it's clear, it's crystal clear. God makes himself known. And the reason this is so important, you guys, and this is why it's, <clears throat> this is why this is one of the oddest Christmas series I've ever preached. The reason I just am not budging from Romans, I will probably for the next couple Sundays, but I'm trying not to budge from Romans because I look at this and I'll tell you, every Sunday I come back to the text, I come away going, this is exactly what's out there. Now, you go, well, duh, we know that, Dan. And I know you know that, and I know that. I could write that on a thing. But when you, when you see in the text and you go, that's exactly what's going on. That's exactly what's going on. Here's what it does. It declutters my evangelism. Because now the, 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 the battleground that I'm going to is not, oh, I hope I'm smart enough to talk to this particular individual about evolutionary processes so I can share Christ. I don't think like that. Why? Because the battleground's not there. What's the text say? The battleground is moral. The battleground has to do with sin. The battleground has to do with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, I know that. You know that. So... Take courage, beloved, in sharing the gospel with this fallen world. The power of God's going to do what the power of God does. You be faithful to the, to the truth of the gospel. And if they throw you these red herrings to try to throw you off about difficult questions, maybe give it a little bit of time for common courtesy, but then get back to point. And as I've come back to this, it has just been so decluttering and refreshing to me. Okay, that's right. This is where we are. This is where we stand. This is the reality. And yet man, mankind professes to be wise and professes to muddy the waters to make it purely intellectual and academic so we never have to look at the sin problem, the fallenness problem. So much so, beloved, the scripture says with great clarity here that God has made this evident to them. God doesn't have to prove himself. Nobody's going to go to hell and say, well, if God would have given me more evidence, he might have pulled this off. That's a fool. That's a fool. But nonetheless, there are two kinds of wisdom, and I'll just give you a passage to jot down. James 3, 13 to 18 speaks of worldly wisdom or the wisdom of this world where it's selfish ambition 
where you're pursuing everything for yourself and you're living for yourself and people say that guy is wise because it sure made out like a bandit in this business deal. That's not biblical wisdom. That's not biblical wisdom in the least. The brilliant, quote unquote, in our world declaring the foolishness of the gospel. Remember this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that makes reference to natural man. As he looks at the gospel, he declares this to be foolishness. So you have two opposing perspectives right now in our world where the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word and the truth of God's existence is foolishness and the man-centered, sin-enjoying, lustful, um, uh, pursuing wisdom is wisdom. And the Lord comes with great clarity and makes it, sure, makes it assured in his word, no, there's one wisdom, and the wisdom is based according to God, not according to man. And so there are two kinds of wisdom. The assumed teaching of evolution in our culture, I, it, to me, is just a smack of Romans chapter 1. And so what's fascinating, you guys, is the majority opinion can agree on something and be wrong. So you, some of you younger people that go into college, you might get laughed at or or put down by somebody because you hold to that. You go into more of a medical field and the medical field tries to rip you because you say, I believe there was a creator who designed the body to function this way. And you go, I can't believe you believe, I mean, what do you, you know, believe in Santa Claus and all those kinds of things. And the pressure of this world seeks to belittle you and tear you down for it. Well, here's the steel to be put in your spine from the word of God. The foolishness of this world, they profess to make it sound as if it is brilliant. But I just challenge you, look at the word, consider what's being proposed, and see the silliness of that perspective. And then look back at the scripture that says with great um, uh, clarity, again, what's at the root of this is a moral issue, not an academic issue. Man in his quote-unquote brilliant creativity has made religions, scientific answers, and all the myriads of ideologies that reveal just how desperately he wishes to hide God. So all the creativity man can come up with to make his own religions, to make his own scientific statements, and the myriads of ideologies all surrounding this idea of somehow to get rid of him, to make him not evident, make it so... So people would actually question whether there's a creator behind all of this. Yet, at the end of the day, our Lord is faithfully declaring his glory through his splendid creation. It's kind of interesting. You you go into a seminar, not that I don't think we would go to a seminar like this, but a seminar that does its best to prove the ideology of, of of evolution and the ideology that there is no God behind this and all we have is this physical realm, so on and so forth. And then a person walks out and goes, man, it's beautiful today. <laughs> yeah, he's declaring his glory. <clears throat> you can deny it all you want, but he's still declaring his glory. Eventually, you're going to accredit it to someone. The world's wisdom is absolute folly that lives in an absolute denial of the obvious reality of a creator God. 
Fallen man strives to get all to agree with him and declare no God. The majority opinion means very little. God's perspective is the one that, that just is the most. It's the voice that's the loudest. It's the clearest. So it's kind of like you have, say, 10 kids, and all the 10 kids say, Dad's getting ice cream today. Dad's getting ice cream today. Dad's getting ice cream today. And all day, Dad's getting ice cream today. Dad's getting ice cream today. And eventually, Dad comes home, and they go, What flavor did you get? I didn't get any ice cream today. But all 10 of us said you did. Whose opinion matters most? If we say, there's no God, there's no God, there's no God. No, look at these studies. Look at these charts. There's no God, there's no God. God's going, um, (laughs) I'm right here. I'm right here. It's the little kid going, you know, you can't see me, you know. Okay, okay. Man in his sinful nature will gladly give his worship and all glory to anything of his own making as long as it is never given to the one deserving of it. You notice the title of this message is The Idol Factory. That's another nickname for your heart and my heart. We make idols a lot, a whole lot. The evil of idolatry is certainly nothing new in Paul's day. I have a series of passages, but I'm just going to have you turn to one or two. Go to Isaiah 46. This is nothing new in the sense of something that Isaiah or that that Paul had never seen or heard of. Your Old Testament scriptures is chock full of this idea of idolatry. The Lord specifically speaking to Israel and Judah, he speaks to this over and over and over again. Verse 6 of Isaiah 46. I'll pick it up at 5, verse 5. So Isaiah 46, verse 5. This is just to give you a, a little taste of one of the prophets. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? Well, here's, here's how they'd compare him. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They fall down, indeed, they worship it. They carry it upon the shoulder and bear it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer, it cannot save him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Cause it to return to your heart, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God. And there's no other. I am God. And there's no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. It's just so... uh, definite and clear and strong. Okay, who would you liken to me? Um, Well, we would take some gold out of our money bag and we'd give it to somebody and they would fashion this thing. Oh, really? That's your God? Yeah. Then what are you going to do? Well, we'd carry it around 
You have to carry your God. Okay, okay, but um, then what? Well, we'd set it on a particular place. Okay, so you set it on a particular place, then what? Then we'd cry out to it over and over and over again. Okay, you'd cry out to it, and then what happens? Nothing. Because there is nothing. The whole thing's a mockery. It's a lie. It's a farce. It's, it's a trick. There is no God. And then he thunders with, there is no one. You liken other things unto me, but how foolish. Let me take you to one more. One that just gives me goosebumps. Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 11. And listen carefully, beloved, to what the prophet says here. The language he uses here is is amazing. Has a nation changed gods, though they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Now listen to who he calls to bear witness to this. Be appalled. O heavens. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. So be appalled, O heavens, at this. And be horribly afraid. Be very devastated, declares Yahweh. For my my people have done two evils. What are the two? They have forsaken me. Please notice, not forsaken truth, necessarily, or thoughts, necessarily. A person. They've Forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The idea is like this beautiful flowing stream somebody has on their property. And it's just this magnificent, beautiful, fresh water. This spring that just bubbles up on their property. And one day they say, you know, I'm kind of tired of fresh drinking water. Why they did that, who knows? There's insanity to this, just like our idolatry. And they say, so here's what I'll do. I'm going to get a whole bunch of concrete, have a concrete truck come up. We'll dump concrete on that spring, and I'll try to just just shut it down as best I can because I I don't want that fresh water anymore. I'm tired of the fresh water. So we'll we'll build this beautiful cistern, something with just this great big cistern, and I'll do it with my own hands so it looks, looks beautiful. Neighbors will drive by. Dan, your your cistern looking great. Thank you. And now, here's what I'll do. We'll catch rainwater, right? Follow with me here. I'll shut down the cist. I'll shut down this beautiful flowing stream. I'll build this cistern out of concrete, and then I'll catch rainwater. And the rainwater will sit, and we'll drink from that. Because that water is going to be so fresh in four days, in the middle of summer. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get a net, and the net will take that slime off before we drink it, of course. That's only right. And you say, nobody would ever even think of doing that. Beloved, that's what Jeremiah is pointing to here. They cut off the fresh stream, and now they have broken cisterns that can hold no water. And they're bowing down to it. They removed God for an idol made of their own hands that doesn't even exist. Absolutely crazy talk that they would do that. If you're jotting down passages, um, Psalm 106, 20, and Jeremiah 10, 1 to 16. Jeremiah 10 particularly, that passage is cutting. It's cutting. The magnificent glory of God 
for images of creation. So turn back with me to Romans chapter 1. And my main, my main point in giving that to you is that we're not something special in, in this idea of idolatry. This is, this is innate. This is in natural man. This wasn't a problem in Israel. This wasn't a problem in the pagan nations. This isn't a problem in China or a problem in, in the U.S. This is a problem, period. This is a human problem, a mankind problem of no God, I've got this by myself, and then, here's the thing, we are so designed by God to always worship, we will always come up with a replacement. The passage that we're looking at in Romans speaks to the exchange. Not to the removal, but to the exchange. Something else or someone else takes his place. So listen to what Paul says. If you look at 23, it says, and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of. Well, first and foremost, of course, is corruptible man. And of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. God's absolute rightful place of worship given to the things he made. Now think of the assault and the offense to God. We, as His creatures, made in His image, to then take that which bears His image and make that our God. You catch that? So when we take, when we take man, and we make man to some extent God, we take that which was created and that which bears his image, and we give that to God's place. It's there, think about this, we are here to reflect his glory. We are image bearers, right? We are image bearers of the king, and we remove the king, and we put the image bearer in the king's spot. That's insanity, beloved. But if you... Just type in humanism and go to their website. You will see the mantra, man is the measure of all things. It's the lie from the very beginning in the garden. You will be like God. Now right there, Eve or Adam should have said, I am like God. I was made in his image. But no, 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 no. I want to be God. See, guys, this is not a new temptation. This is not a new struggle. This is in us. And so why would it cause us to be caught off guard that he says the first thing the image is made out of is corruptible man? But also, if you just track through human history, it is not hard to track down um, idols made of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This is, this is not that hard to find. It's everywhere. It's in every people group some kind of idol. The tricky part is when we hear the word idol, we typically think of something carved or fastened by another person then put up as an object. Well, you're, you're making it far too small. You're, you're, you're zoning that in way too tightly when, if that's all you see in reference to idolatry. I'll speak to that in, in just a second, but idolatry is far more vast than merely the little trinket somebody may put up uh, on their mantle. Notice that it isn't that man simply ceases to worship. Please catch this. Man does not cease to worship, by no means. He replaces the object of his worship, 
God is not only removed, but he's substituted for. The key word within this section is this word exchanged or traded out for. Take the time and let the insanity of this really sink in deep into your thinking. Creation's been trans, tra, uh, exchanged for evolution. Worship of the only God has been exchanged for worship of anything and everything else. Created for purpose, you and I were created for purpose, has been exchanged for an aimless accident of evolutionary processes. Objective truth has been transferred for no truth. Which, by the way, when anybody says, well, that's true for you, but not true for me, that's just saying there's no truth. God has been exchanged for an idol made by man. Truth has been exchanged for lies. This is an act done by a lost, sinful humankind. We have exchanged reality for foolishness. And I mean that in the truest sense of that word biblically. We've exchanged reality for foolishness. We've plugged up the real stream. We've built a broken cistern full of slimy water. That's what's taken place. That's what Paul's speaking to here. You have exchanged. It says that uh, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals, crawling creatures. Verse 24 is devastating. Therefore, God gave them over. I don't know of too many phrases in the Bible that should give us greater fear and trepidation when we read it. Therefore, God gave them over. What does that mean? I don't know the fullness of all that is meant there, but I know for, uh, to some level his divine restraint is removed. The glory of God that is present, his, his, his presence is taken back. Um, one commentator made reference to, he's no longer holding the boat that's fighting against that stream. He's let the boat go. Because the idea here is not that he just gave them over as in he re- removed himself, but that they went towards exactly what they lusted after, what they wanted, as you'll see in the second part of this passage. There's a divine restraint in our world. God is restraining evil. And at times, he chooses to let it go, to cease restraining. When, how, where, that's his purpose. I bow to him. He decides that. I don't decide that. But I can't think of a scarier place to be than when you are released. This is uh, it's an interesting statement, but in reference to church discipline, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians, it, um, the Apostle Paul makes reference to being delivered over to Satan. You're let go. You've been warned three, four times. And you say, no, I want my sin. I don't care about any consequence. Well, then you're going to be removed from the fellowship and you'll be delivered over to Satan. You'll be given the devices. You want it so bad, then you, you go and there will be unbelievable consequences you can't even think of at this moment. So we're told here, beloved, therefore God gave them over to what? Well, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. I'm going to speak more to the dishonoring of their bodies um, in 2024, okay? So I'm not going to 
I'm not going to spend much time on that this morning. Because look at 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So the magnificent gods replaced. This is the removal of divine restraint. God gives them over to the lusts of their hearts for impurity. Please notice the close connection. And this is very important, okay? It's a help, I think, in your study of the word. Notice and always notice the connection between idolatry and immorality. And then go back to your Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and look and seek to find how often you see idolatry and immorality totally linked together, handcuffed to one another throughout human history. Their bodies were dishonored as they were released. This subject, uh, or I'm sorry, I want to say this is not merely truth being exchanged for lies, but our God being exchanged for lies. The truth of God refers to God himself, where it says they exchange the truth of God. This is not just the truth in the sense of doctrine or theology, but it's the truth of God, the existence of God, the person of God. And, you know, there's always those little nuggets, right, when you're studying your Bible and something uh, special kind of pops out of a text and it just, I don't know, it warms your heart in a different way than the rest of the study did. One of those little things that happened in my study this week was the reality of it's not a removal of truth about God, but it's a removal of God. It's personal. It's not just, oh, we're not going to teach those teachings. No, the Bible doesn't talk like that. It's way deeper than that, you guys. It's animosity towards the person. It's animosity towards the king. I don't want that person. It's not, it's not simply uh, the Bible, though that is certainly a part of this. This is God's word, but it's I don't want God. That's in the heart of man. Guys, uh, it, it, it's going to be tricky, okay, as preacher, but it'll be tricky for you as, as church body. This is going to be bad news for a good year, all right? Romans 1 to 3. It's going to be good, bad news for quite some time. But it's important that we see that. We must see that. We must be honest with the Word of God, honest with ourselves, honest with our world. What does God say is going on? This is what it says is going on. This is what the heart of man is like. We can flatter ourselves. We can listen to what this lost world wants to tell us about ourselves. But at the end of the day, when we say, God, will you tell me what's the heart of man like? It is so grim. It is so strikingly grim when God says, this is what it's like. That's what fallen nature looks like. That's what fallen nature looks like. The incredible sacrifices. Think about this, you guys. They exchanged truth for lies. Now notice, if you look down, look at 24, or I'm sorry, 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. But notice, notice how much farther he goes. And worshipped and served the creature, the creature rather than the creator. Worshipped and served. So think about this. It's not only lip service to, a, to an idol. It's not that somebody simply says, oh, I have lip service that I pay to this idol. No, no. It's far more than worship. They serve. 
There's sacrifice made. You go, well, in what way? What would that look like? Well, the incredible sacrifices made by man in the service to idols of their own making floods the history of mankind. This floods the history of mankind. You see death in the service to a man-made God. You see sacrifices of children in the Old Testament to an idol of their own making. And I won't go into detail, but the manner in which they sacrifice their children to these false idols, it makes you physically ill. Money, time, stress, all of this given over. Beloved, we had... We had men fly airplanes into a building, buildings in our country, convinced they were serving a God that they made. You tell me what kind of sacrifices might be made in serving the creature rather than the creator. No, this is not merely lip service, beloved. This is a service. This is a, a sacrifice that is given over. This is the enslavement of idolatry. Here's the horrific digression in our passage, if you, if you get a hold of this. Truth recognized, truth rejected, truth suppressed, truth replaced, and immorality floods. Truth recognized, truth rejected, Truth suppressed, truth replaced, and immorality floods in. That's the digression that's in this passage, 18 to 25, that we've been looking at. It doesn't say, there's, there's no excuse. Nobody gets the excuse of saying, oh, I never saw that. No, that doesn't exist. You saw it. And then after you saw it, you rejected it. And then once you rejected it, then you sought to suppress it because it just keeps coming up and you can't get it out of here. And then after, you've, after you have suppressed it, you say, now let's get something in its place. Let's plug the fountain and let's put the cistern. And then wonder of wonders, look at that. What flows from that? Immorality. Now, please don't miss me here. I'm not saying, therefore, that caused the immorality. The immorality is at the base of this whole thing that, that we're looking at here, okay? But isn't it fascinating that as soon as we remove God, now we're free to do whatever we wish, which was what was at the base of this at the very beginning. The, this is the horrific digression in mankind. Now, Paul is an interesting guy. He never wastes ink. Obviously, it's the inspired and errant word. But did you notice the last little thing he does in 25? Look at verse 25. Who is blessed forever, amen. <laughs> the reason I love that, it is a pitch black, dark room, and he kicks a flashlight on right at the end of verse 25. Because the answer, or the question would be this. Then Paul, what do we do? Oh, well, let me remind you. There is a glorious one. There is an eternal one. There is one who's designed this world. There is one who is in marvelous light in the midst of this putrid darkness. And he's blessed forever. And, and what, I, what I sense here, which take that for whatever, um, is that as the apostle's writing this, 
He can't help but herald that reality out there. They worship the creature instead of the creator. By the way, the creator's blessed forever. Amen. He, he, it, it just it falls out of his heart. I must glorify the right one in the midst of this writing. I must honor the one true living God. This is not merely a traditional statement. Please, guys, there, there's no ink wasted on your page, okay? This is on purpose. The Lord's purposeful in what he's put here, in what he has written. Paul did not merely just throw out some traditional statement that felt like the right time to do it. No. No, he heralds this. This is exactly what should be said at this moment. As a, as a reminder to the reader, as we're bogged down in the filth of lost mankind, he says, oh, but there's a blessed creator. And then he even adds his own affirmation. Amen. He can't hold it in. He's a Baptist, right? He's just got to get the amen out there. His heart's so full of the truth of this gracious, magnificent God, and he sees what the dark heart of man has done, his response, oh no, he's blessed forever, amen. So let me land the plane and we'll, we'll come to the Lord's table. We fool ourselves if we read these verses and find ourselves scoffing at the foolishness of idolatry and thinking we're above such a stupid thing. We all, in the some way or another, place something or someone in God's rightful place as the recipient of our love, our attention, our worship, our enthusiasm, our time, our praise, etc. All grand sta- all, we all stand guilty before God as idolaters. May the Lord rescue any of us who may come to a passage like this and actually walk out of this building pompous and arrogant that we're above this. You're not above this. You are an idolater. I am an idolater. At some level or another in our lives, something has been given God's place. Someone, something, fill in the blank. So what could ever break through this kind of dark, sinful truth suppressing? This God-hating heart of stone. The answer is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to bust through the crust of fallen man to take a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. If you're writing notes, write down 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. And this is where the Apostle Paul lists quite a myriad of sins, particular sins, naming them uh, or listing them by name. And then he makes this statement. And such were some of you. My ride's here, so I've got to wrap this up. <laughs> and such were some of you. And that's the reality, you guys, for every last one of us. That's who I was. And I just say this... Um, with the chopper blowing out there. The crescendo of Romans is you begin to read the first chapter and there's a temptation to say, wow, man is bad. Then you read chapter 2. Wow, man's really bad in chapter 3. Man is horrible. But here's, here's you will miss it if you go there. Because here's what should be done. I'm horrible. I'm lost. 
He's not speaking of a subgroup that's, your, that's different from you. That's you. That's me. All right. Uh, where's he going? <laughs> Satan's flying helicopters these days, I tell you. Yes, okay. But that, that reality, beloved, is the one that um, I keep coming back to in this study is, that's Dan. That's me. That's what my heart was. And God in his grace, it broke through that wall and made me his son. It's a forever um, grasping and digging and never coming to the bottom the more you look into that truth. So let me pray. We'll, we'll come and celebrate the Lord's sacrifice. Our Father in heaven, God, I um, am at a loss, Lord, at how to best say with words the astounding nature, God, of what you've done. And Lord, the more we dig into the reality of who we are apart from grace, oh Father, I pray that that backdrop would make the colors of the gospel just so much more bright and glorious in our sight, Lord. We love you and pray for your blessing on PCBC, Father. Help us never, ever, ever to grow dull as we peer into the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his precious name, amen.